At KPMG, we make the difference. It's not just something we say. It's what we do. Our professionals believe in the value of collaboration and the power of technology. We work closely with clients to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity, develop bold solutions that innovate industries, and create better outcomes driven by data. Brighter insights, bolder solutions, better outcomes. It's how our people make the difference, driving growth and value for our clients. KPMG, make the difference. Tonight on The Readout. House Democrats will always put American values over autocracy, benevolence over bigotry, the Constitution over the cult, democracy over demagogues, working families over the well-connected, xenial over xenophobia, yes we can over you can't do it, and zealous representation over zero-sum confrontation. Didn't he do it? House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries makes it sound as easy as ABC. But after 15 tries, it's Kevin holding the gavel. We're watching the House floor as Republicans try to get organized and what Kevin's struggles mean for our democracy. Also tonight, the nexus of insurrection. Steve Bannon and the others who cheered on the January 6th attack on the Capitol are now exporting that brand of anti-democratic violence to Brazil. And that is where we begin tonight, with the notion of contagion. For most of the 20th century and into the 21st, the U.S. considered itself a leading, if not the leading exporter of democracy around the world. And while that sometimes involved nefarious acts like overthrowing governments in Iran, Iraq, Haiti, and throughout Central and South America, promoting democracy was kind of America's thing. Freedom is indivisible. And when one man is enslaved, all are not free. No, democracy is not a fragile flower. Still, it needs cultivating. If the rest of this century is to witness the gradual growth of freedom and democratic ideals, we must take actions to assist the campaign for democracy. It is the policy of the United States to seek and support the growth of democratic movements and institutions in every nation and culture with the ultimate goal of ending tyranny in our world. But a funny thing happened in 2016. A minority of voters in the undemocratic electoral college elected a political and social arsonist named Donald Trump as president. What happened next was entirely predictable, according to the advocacy nonprofit Freedom House. The U.S. score in freedom in the world fell by 11 points on a 100 point scale in the decade from 2010 to 2020, with an accelerated deterioration of six points during the Trump presidency. Now, to be clear, the decline had already begun by the time Trump became the president, fueled by legislative dysfunction, partisan gerrymandering, the excessive influence of special interests in politics, ongoing racial discrimination, and the spread of polarization and disinformation in the media environment. But Trump absolutely made it worse. Then on January 6th, 2021, after a majority of voters declined to reelect him as president, this happened. Oh, 
According to the international policy organization, the Eurasia Group, the U.S. is now the leading exporter of tools that undermine democracy. The result of algorithms and social media platforms that rip at the fabric of civil society while maximizing profit, creating unprecedented political division, disruption and dysfunction. That trend is accelerating fast, not driven by governments, but by a small collection of individuals with little understanding of the social and political impact of their actions. So it should come as no surprise that the U.S. far-right extremism contagion is spreading around the world. Over the weekend, this is what supporters of Trump's friend and superfan Jair Bolsonaro did in Brazil. Chaos in Brazil. As thousands stormed the country's capital, protesting October's election results, supporters of far-right former president Jair Bolsonaro unwilling to accept his defeat to Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, otherwise known as Lula. Today, Lula da Silva, the duly elected president who defeated Bolsonaro, denounced those people, calling them fascist fanatics, and took legal measures to punish them. The leader of Bolsonaro's own party called the attack an embarrassment. The White House said President Biden spoke by phone with President Lula, condemning the violence and inviting the Brazilian leader to Washington next month. Meanwhile, Jair Bolsonaro is in Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis' Florida, living it up in Kissimmee and hitting up Publix and KFC. According to his wife, he's now reportedly in the hospital. Much like Trump, he's been spending his free time raising doubts about the integrity of the election from the comfort of his Florida compound. And joining me now is Eugene Robinson, Washington Post columnist and MSNBC political analyst, and Kurt Bardella, Democratic strategist and former spokesman for the House Oversight Committee. And Eugene, I do want to start with you because, you know, when I saw the visuals of what happened in Brazil over the weekend with these mobs of people attacking the Supreme Court building, their version of the Congress and even the presidential palace, it, it, it looked exactly like January 6th. And then it turns out, oh, wait. It was exactly like January 6th. Your thoughts? Yeah, it was. It was, it was exactly like uh, January 6th. The only difference was that, that fortunately, uh, the, you know, the, the Congress was not in session. The Supreme Court it was a Sunday. Um, the president was not there. Uh, Lula was actually in Sao Paulo at the time, um, many miles away. But um, what we see there uh, is is exactly a carbon copy of January 6th, and you can draw a mm -hmm. straight line from January 6th to, to what happened on Sunday. I mean, I was South American, of course, but I spent a lot of time in Brasilia. I know exactly where this happened. And this is this is shocking to Brazilians to see the desecration of these buildings that are held in, in as high regard um, by, by Brazilians as our capital uh, is held in the United States. Um, they're also you know, masterpieces of modern architecture, but, um, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, it, it is, uh, it, it is, it is stunning. Um, and we can talk about every aspect of this. We talk about how, how social media helped organize it, which is starting to come out in the Brazilian press. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro is Donnie, Donald Trump's mini me. That's what he was all along. Um, his techniques were Donald Trump's techniques. His rhetoric was Trump's rhetoric. Uh, and the result of his loss is the same as the result of Donald Trump's loss. 
and you know, to, to bring you in, Kurt, I mean, it's, it's, it's the same, even to the point where there's a Florida nexus, um, you know, to it, right? This is where Bolsonaro fled. It has become the readout of people with this kind of, you know, sort of f- fascist uh, affinity. <laughs> you know, Florida has become like a magnet for it, um, including the fact that, and including the fact that one of the kind of fringe players in this, just like with Donald Trump, is Steve Bannon, who has been trying to market this kind of fascist, anti-democratic, right-wing, you know, kind of idea all around the world. Let me play you what what, what Eduardo Bolsonaro, so Eduardo Bolsonaro, the son um, of Jair Bolsonaro, he tweeted this video, um, and it's a video of Steve Bannon talking about what happened. And I don't know if we have the video of it or we might just have this. Let me just read it to you. It says, look in the streets of Brazil at the great patriots of Brazil and in a lot of danger to themselves have come come forward and are in the streets of Brazil. This is the people saying, no, you use the machines. Same thing as as Trump said, the judiciary to shut us down and the media. And we're not going to tolerate it. And we will be interested to see how it plays out. Stephen Miller is also advising the Bolsonaros. Your thoughts. Yeah, it's not an accident or even a surprise that after the election in Brazil, Bannon was out there undermining the integrity of that election uh, in the same almost carbon copy rhetoric that he used after our 2020 election, calling into question the legitimacy, uh, calling into question the voting machines that were used in the Brazil mm-hmm. election. Uh, he met with with the son at, at Matt Mar-a-Lago. Uh, and, and I just want to remind everybody that none of this is surprising. Steve Bannon himself said, quote, Lenin wanted to destroy the state, and that's my goal, too. He is a self-described Leninist. What he wants is anarchy. What he wants is violence. What he wants is to tear down the pillars of any government establishment, not just in the United States of America, but anywhere in the world. He wants it to spread, and that's what's happening. And it's not an accident that these actors, bad actors, take their cues, learn the lesson from Steve Bannon, from Donald Trump, from the extremists and the Republican Party in this country, and they're trying to duplicate that elsewhere. You know, and, and Eugene, it, you know, it and, and isn't like Joy, an insult. Oh, go on, go on. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, let's just point out that in both cases, in both the United States and in Brazil, this attempt to delegitimize the election started before the election. The claims <laughs> that if I lose, it is rigged. Um, Bolsonaro made the same claim that Donald Trump. Well, right. And Eugene, I I wanted you to sort of zoom it out a little bit because, you know, Steve Bannon, who many people didn't pay much attention to, you know, when he was the head of Breitbart saying he was going to make it the home of the alt-right, which is the new version of, you know, the racist right. They redefined, you know, what used to be, you know, Ku Klux Klanism as, you know, alt-right, whatever. Um, No one paid much attention to him, but he has been running all over Europe trying to sell this idea, you know, selling it as Brexit selling it, you know, in, in, in this country, selling it in places like Joe. So he's been kind of hawking this brand g- globally. Sure. And, and the frightening thing is there are pieces of this, whether it's in Hungary or in Brazil or in the U.S., it's really a contagion that's spreading around the world. It is a contagion, and it's affecting different countries in different ways. But, the, you know, the far right one in Italy, um, the far right is getting in Sweden. I mean, it's 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 happening a lot of places. And this this, this populism, it, the, the playbook involves um, uh, uh, using sort of populist anger or stoking populist anger against things like immigration, against things mm-hmm. like the system or the, you know, those people 
who are uh, somehow oppressing you. It's stoking grievance. Uh, and, and, and again, it's very effective. I mean, it, 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 is, a, it is effective and it is a transnational phenomenon. Uh, and it's one that we need not only to pay attention to, but to actively work against because it is actively working against democracy. Yeah. And, you know, and, and Kurt, the fact that you now have Bolsonaro holed up in the United States, in Florida, which does then potentially if there's some sort of an extradition, if he is somehow legally uh, implicated in what happened, it, it does create kind of an international incident here that then becomes bigger than just this joke of a, a, a former president whining and eating KFC in Florida. And so if you could talk just a little bit about, I mean, the Florida of it is also a piece of it. You know, this has become a movement that is emanating from the United States. It's not just coming to the United States. Yeah, uh, the, apparently this kind of this brand of domestic terrorism is an export of the United States and then export of the Republican Party. And there's a reason why the, the hideaway, the hideout for some of these bad actors is to go to Ron DeSantis's and Donald Trump's Florida. That's where they're going. So that tells you everything you need to know about why they've chosen Florida and places like Mar-a-Lago as safe haven uh, at this point. Mar-a-Lago is, is nothing more than just a front for a criminal enterprise designed to undermine democracy worldwide. That's what's happening right now. It is, and it's frightening. Um, thank you both for being here. Eugene Robinson and Kurt Bardella, thank you both very much. Next on The Readout, the House is in session after Kevin's Pyrrhic victory. He's officially in charge of a caucus bent on rage and retribution, not legislating, that's committed to endless political investigations and dangerous economic brinksmanship. And just moments ago, they passed a rules package that will give them the tools to do both of those things. The Readout continues after this. At KPMG, our people make the difference. It's not just something we say, it's what we do. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. In case you missed the drama over the weekend, Kevin McCarthy finally wrested control of the House Speaker's gavel after 15 votes, giving up the store to far-right holdouts to get there. After a week of Republicans proving they are not fit to govern. As we speak, they are dealing with the basics of organizing Congress. Just moments ago, passing a new House rules package for MAGA extremists. 
It includes a new rule allowing one member to force a vote of no confidence in the speaker, along with steep spending cuts and changes to rules on raising the debt limit, all of which McCarthy promised in order to win over the far-right holdouts. Meanwhile, the investigations that Republicans are preparing to launch are equally disturbing. Among them, what can only be called a kangaroo court that will soon target the Department of Justice and the FBI, the president's son, Hunter Biden, and a judiciary subcommittee on, quote, weaponization of the federal government. The proposed panel, chaired by Jim Jordan, would be empowered to review, quote, ongoing criminal investigations, presumably into Donald Trump's many alleged crimes. But you've got to wonder if one of them will be a future investigation into Jim Jordan. Joining me now from the Capitol, Esaio Kapoor, uh, an NBC News senior national political reporter, and Maura Gillespie, former aide to Congressman Adam Kinzinger and Speaker John Boehner. Thank you both for being here. Esaio, I do want to start with you. This rules package is pretty draconian, um, not only allowing that one member to vote as a uh, vote of no confidence, but also these cut-as-you-go budget requirements and some other things that are mainly seem to be targeting spending on social services. Uh, what went down, and was it a unanimous vote on the Republican side? Not exactly a unanimous vote, Joy. There was one Republican, Tony Gonzalez of Texas, who voted no. He had announced several days ago that he would do that. Uh, but he was the only Republican who voted no. Everyone else stuck with the caucus and voted yes on this package. And it passed by a vote of 220 to 213 with every Democrat voting no. Now, there are two uh, particularly notable things about this. It brings back the rule that any one member can force a motion to vacate the chair, also known as overthrowing the Speaker of the House. This was a problem for Republicans back in the days of Speaker John Boehner when uh, the House ultimately got rid of it because it made it too difficult for uh, the House to function for a Speaker to govern. This was a demand by the right-wing holdouts because they want to keep Speaker McCarthy on a short leash here uh, and mm. make sure that he doesn't cross them with the demands. The second, Joy, and you, and you alluded to this, there are various budgetary restrictions in this package. It makes it harder to raise spending. It creates a new three-fifths requirement to raise taxes, and it most notably makes it harder to raise the debt limit by eliminating these sort of end runs that Congress has used in the past to protect members from tough votes. This is a major confrontation coming down the road because this is not an optional piece of legislation. It has to happen to prevent a catastrophic default. And at the moment, I can't quite figure out how the Republican-controlled House, uh, you know, where these right-wing holdouts who almost sunk Kevin McCarthy's speaker bid have so much influence can reconcile with a Democratic-controlled Senate and be signed into law by President Biden. But look, big picture, this was the easy part for, get, for uh, Speaker McCarthy, getting the votes to become speaker, passing the rules resolution. What comes next is much, much harder governing with this wafer-thin majority, Joy. Right. And, and, and more, this brings you uh, into this conversation because, you know, Matt Gates said their goal was to put uh, McCarthy in a straitjacket. Well, they did that uh, because, as you know very well, um, on the one hand, you worked for Adam Kinzinger. We're mm -hmm. looking down the barrel of steep defense cuts. If they play this game the way they've laid it out, there could be very steep cuts to the Defense Department budget. Now, some folks on the liberal side may be like, go strong, do it, right? It's something that you normally can't do. But you're also talking about real questions about whether Ukraine funding will remain as it is. A lot of Americans are not going to look very uh, well on that. And with all the, the right. crises, China, et cetera. And then on the other side, the, you know, I watch enough Lawrence O'Donnell to know there's a such thing called a must-pass bill. A must-pass bill is like the debt limit. If you default right. on the debt limit, we go into a deep, deep re recession or worse. So how does Kevin McCarthy manage to to with a lot less skills than John Boehner pass a debt limit bill without getting recalled? Right. 
And I think that's the big question with this motion to vacate the chair as a weapon, essentially looming over his head, especially with the debt ceiling, that's going to be a real issue. And it's going, unfortunately, I think with a Senate led uh, a Democratic led Senate and Democratic White House, it will require a few moderate Republicans likely to stand up and say, we will not let the full faith and credit of the government, the U.S. government be threatened. Now, again, I think a few members have talked about that. You know, Rep. Brian Fitzpatrick has mentioned that they would do a discharge petition should that come to that scenario. But one thing I want to mention, the rules, obviously, there are a lot of things that you, you know, that are concerning to say the least, but there are some positives that I do think are worth mentioning. The end of proxy voting. I'm hopeful, maybe I'm just being a super optimist here, but that by ending proxy voting, it'll allow members to come back to Washington, D.C. and build relationships. It's a lot easier to look on a Zoom call and point to someone and say, I won't you know, work with that person or I disagree with them than it is to sit in a committee hearing room next to that person, get to know them as a human and not as an enemy. And, you know, and that's a good point, because, right. And I think and I mentioned defense spending. There have been a lot of, you know, liberal folks out here that for a long time have said the Defense Department budget is bloated and should be cut. And it's been a big no, no. But it looks like, you know, if you're really committed to cutting spending, that's where a lot of the bulk is in the budget. But but do you just talk a little bit about when you were experiencing working specifically for Speaker Boehner? Did you get the sense that Tea Party members who came in on this zeal? to cut social spending, to cut social security, to cut Medicare, to cut Medicaid, to cut food stamps, that they understood that there was an implication to that? Or do you think that they cared about the implications of that or cutting military spending? In my personal opinion, I think a lot of these members come in because they've told their constituents they're going to cut everything and they don't think about the implications. A lot of members also come in and think that they're going to run Congress on day one. And that's not Mm -hmm. reality because they don't understand how it works. They don't understand how to govern, let alone how to govern effectively. So back then at the Freedom Caucus and we had members who simply did things simply to go then campaign off of or to go fundraise off of. And so a lot of it doesn't really come down to the nickel and diming of things because they don't actually look through the full picture of what those nickel and diming does to our economy, but also to our, like you said, our programs, our defense spending, our ability to, you know, counter China's influence, our ability to support allies like Ukraine. They're not thinking through in a full picture. Yeah. And, you know, Sahil, here's the irony, right? You know, there's a lot of complaint in the Republican Party about the border, for instance. But if you're really going to fix the border issue, that would mean more spending because you'd need to spend more on foreign aid, you know, assisting the governments of places like Guatemala and Honduras to stand up their economy so that people won't need to leave. There are things you'd have to do that would cost money. And so, you know, I wonder if there are conversations that you are hearing from members, either on the Democratic side or the Republican side, of whether these hardline members are going to be allowed to stop the rest of the party from doing anything? Because it sounds as if they just want to bring the whole body to a halt and investigate Hunter Biden. Well, Joy, there are mechanisms, even in this new Republican House with these new rules where the House could theoretically raise spending, they would have to cut other things. The problem is it's very, very difficult to do that at this point in a way that the Democratic Senate can accept, in a way that President Biden can sign into law. And this is where I think Speaker McCarthy is going to be the most hamstrung, even if there is an issue, like I believe immigration and the border is, where Republicans have some political advantages uh, that they can try to exploit with uh, a Democratic-controlled Senate, especially ahead of a very difficult 
2024 election, they're going to have to do it in a way where they compromise some as well because they simply can't get everything they want in this House and last, or rather in this Congress with, you know, Joe Biden as president. And last weekend, it, it showed two very important things. It showed that the 20 most conservative members of the House Republican Caucus are willing to stand on the floor and humiliate their own party's leadership. And it also showed that the most moderate members of the House Republican Conference are not going to stand up and object to it. You didn't hear anybody, uh, ultimately, except Tony, except Tony Gonzalez, stand up and say, we're not going to accept these concessions. If you give them everything they want, then you're going to lose us. It just didn't happen. There yeah. isn't that same mentality, you know, to flex power on the moderate end of the, the Republican Conference. And that will be a dynamic going forward, because yes, the you yeah. know, uh, members like Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick do think the debt limit has to be raised. The question is, how are they going to be able to do it if they're not willing to put the screws to the, the right flank the way, you know, the right flank is to them? And meanwhile, Maura, I'm going to give you the last word on this. You know, you had Marjorie Taylor Greene, who styles herself now in charge of this house, tweeting out like Dr. Dre music and getting smacked down by Dr. Dre saying, get my music out of your tweets. And I think had her Twitter shut down for it. But but what I mean, is that the sense that you had when you were working? It wasn't as bad, uh, but it seems like it's gotten worse, that it's all performative, that what these members see as their job is to get on Fox News, to own the libs, to tweet things, and that they really don't think about actual legislating? I would say yes. I think, you know, obviously with our caucus of uh, rebel rousers and as John Boehner called them, the chaos caucus, it was different then. It was not to this extreme where you now have people who are running on platforms simply to become famous for being an antagonist. Uh, That is what they ran on. And that's something that we haven't seen before, or we hadn't seen before. So we're dealing with a whole new breed of chaos. Yeah. But this, the goals are the same, is to obstruct the work of the House and say it's for the benefit of the American people, but it's not. It's for them. Yeah. And, and the new other new wrinkle is these are people who some of whom engaged in insurrection and tried to overthrow the government. And now what they right. got for that is more power. It is a wild time uh, to be alive. Sahil Kapoor, thank you very much. <laughs> this this uh, simulation is just all messed up. Morgan Gillespie, thank you both uh, for being here. All right, coming up still ahead, under pressure to do something, President Biden visits the southern border after announcing controversial new measures aimed at addressing an historic surge in migration. Stay with us. At KPMG, our people make the difference. It's not just something we say, it's what we do. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Above all, we both committed to pursuing a better future, one grounded on peace and prosperity for all of our people. So, Mr. President, this afternoon uh, and years ahead, I look forward to building that better future. 
President Biden is currently in Mexico meeting with President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador ahead of tomorrow's North American Leaders Summit with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Immigration is certain to be a hot topic at the summit, with President Biden fresh from his visit to the border. His first as president in El Paso, Texas, yesterday after instituting new restrictions on asylum seekers. The president toured border enforcement operations and met with community leaders, but notably, he did not meet with any migrants. Two administration officials say that's because there weren't any at the center he visited. But NBC News spoke to migrants outside a church a short drive away from the center. Biden's visit comes amid a right-wing campaign to attack him as weak on the border. When he arrived, Texas Governor Greg Abbott handed Biden a letter demanding further action. And House Republicans have already promised to investigate the border and to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. That Republican rhetoric is driven by their fear of demographic change. And Democrats have a history of being way too reactive to it. It's what earned President Obama the nickname Deporter in Chief. And joining me now is former Republican Congressman Carlos Corvello of Florida, who's now an MSNBC political analyst, and Maria Teresa Kumar, president and CEO of Volta Latino, and an MSNBC contributor. Friends of the show, both. Thank you both for being here. Um, and, and I want to start with you first, Carlos, and just ask you how, as, as a Republican, you read this. Right now, we have a major shortage of workers in this country. There are 10 million jobs available and only 6 million uh, people who are unemployed, not all of whom are necessarily looking to work, particularly in the fields that need them the most, a lot of service industry jobs, et cetera. Contrast that with Canada that has a similar demographic problem, an older population, a need for workers. You know that what they're doing, the opposite. They're begging for labor. They're saying, please, please, please come here. Then we need people with job skills. Please come here. Meanwhile, Republicans here they love to talk about the border and get mad at Biden, but they don't want to do anything to actually increase the amount of people who are able to come and help to fill in some of these jobs. Why is that? Well, Joy, I think you're absolutely right. What we need is immigration reform that modernizes our immigration laws, modernizes our immigration system so that it's compatible, consistent with the needs of our economy. That's what the solution is. And of course, I think we have to invest more in border security. I mean, most Americans don't think that anyone who shows up at the border with an asylum claim should just be processed into the country. But this isn't as simple as yelling about border security or impeaching a government official. You actually have to propose solutions that are going to solve the problem. One of them is modernizing our immigration system. Another one is investing more in Latin America so that there's opportunity, jobs for people in their countries, which, by the way, provides opportunities for U.S. exporters so that we can export products to those countries. Those are the solutions that people should be talking about. But... Republicans, and in some cases, to be fair, Democrats in the past have favored the politics of immigration over the solutions for immigration. Well, let, let me talk about that. Let's, let's draw that out just a little bit, MTK, because, you know, uh, one of the challenges Democrats have had is that the part of what Carlos just said, um, I, I think is absolutely true, that you need a solution that would involve spending some money, which, of course, the far right wing part of the Republican Party doesn't want to spend any money on anything. So they don't want to do that. And you'd have to do foreign investment and complex things like that. Democrats seem to understand that. And, and President Obama ended up doing DACA because he couldn't even get a bill that would allow Dreamers, which is the most popular group of migrants 
period, to, to come in. But on the, on the Democratic side now, these are their challenges. They respond to the rhetoric of your week on border, your week at the border, your week at the border by only focusing on the security aspect and saying, look, see, we'll deport more people. Look, see, we'll double down on the harshness of keeping people out. And then they get nothing for it. And this is the challenge, Joy. Remember back when, when the Gang of Eight that included Marco Rubio, it was and included Lindsey Graham, and was led by both Schumer and McCain. It was a bipartisan deal. And the yep. crux of it was, how do we deal with the undocumented 11 million people who are living within our borders? And somehow the Democrats went and negotiated, and that's why President uh, President Obama got deporter in chief because he went and negotiated around security before actually having anything in hand. And that's been the longtime criticism. And our biggest problem right now, when it comes to this policy, is that we have to divorce two very different issues. We still have 11 million people living inside the United States that have 16 million Americans, loved ones. They live in mixed status families. They've been part of our communities for a long time. No one talks to them about it anymore. But what we do talk about is the crisis at the border, not recognizing that that is a broader international issue. That is a Western mm-hmm. hemispheric issue that has is as a result of the COVID pandemic. It's a result of the narco trafficking and it's a result of climate change. And unless we get our ducks in order, and it's great that President Biden is meeting with Mexican, the Mexican president and Prime yeah. Minister Trudeau. That's excellent because it's a North and Hemispheric issue, but we have to decouple it. And the Republicans are going to have to get their big boys pants on and decide that this is what is going to be good for the country. The idea that we need we, we as a nation have a right to secure our borders, but we also have to have an honest conversation of what are those future immigration flows that are going to buttress our economy? Canada has figured it out. I was in Canada just uh, around Thanksgiving and the amount of migrants that I saw there that had work visas in hand that were getting integrated into the, the community that were learning either French because they were in Montreal or Ottawa learning English was a remarkably different tactic than what we're doing now. And we have to recognize that we do need a robust immigration group of people coming in. We need to figure out the asylum process, but then we still need to remember that there's 11 million people that pay our taxes, that were part of the essential workers that made sure that we were able to thrive as a country that we have not yet resolved. You know, and Carlos, they have the same issue in in Britain. It caused Brexit, this sort of anxiety about new people. In this country, you have people on another network that are openly talking about the Great Replacement, a very racist theory that is directly about people who look like y'all and me coming in and people fearing that that's going to change the demographics of the country. Are there Republicans left that have the courage to stand up to Fox News, quite frankly, the sort of entertainment political complex on the right, and actually work with Democrats to pass something? Because it feels like in the next two years, there aren't. But I would be happy if you told me that there are. Well, there are some, Joy. I think in the Senate, for sure, you will have Republicans who are willing to work with Democrats, have worked with Democrats in the past. Lindsey Graham has worked with Dick Durbin over the years. He's still there, and I think he would still be interested in an immigration solution. In the House, Maria Salazar of South Florida has proposed a bill that she thinks could get uh, Democratic support, especially in in, uh, this Congress, where Democrats are in the minority. Uh, But it's it's few and far between. And the bottom line is that Republicans Republican leadership is afraid of this issue. Republican leadership forced us to file a discharge petition in 2018 just to have a debate and votes on the floor on immigration. So that's a big obstacle.
Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, I, I would love for you guys to come back because this is going to be an issue for a while. So we should talk about it more. Former Congressman Carlos Corbello and Maria Teresa Kumar, thank you both very much. Up next, heading on down to the Sunshine State, where school shootings are not a priority. But putting a stop to those dirty little diversity and inclusion programs, well, that sure as heck is. We'll be right back. American education is at a crisis point. The National Assessment of Educational Progress, known as the Nation's Report Card, recently showed historic declines in reading and math. And that math scores for eighth graders fell in nearly every state. The results are an indictment of the pandemic's devastating impact on school children, especially those in public education, a system that was already in crisis from lack of funding to underpaid teachers to the rich-poor divide. Then there's the issue of health and safety, where the U.S. is woefully behind. Gun violence and school shootings are a uniquely American epidemic, because here and only here do lawmakers propose metal detectors and arming teachers rather than, let's say, laws to keep an AR-15 out of dangerous hands, which is why it is terrifying to go to school in a lot of states. The threat feels ubiquitous, a permanent wound for survivors and communities, like those children in Uvalde and their parents who are still grappling with the horror of a gunman killing fourth graders. It took just six days for the country to register its first school shooting of 2023. In Newport News, Virginia, where a first grader obtained a gun, brought it to school, and opened fire on his teacher. A six-year-old, not the victim this time, but the shooter. The fact that a six-year-old can get a gun, much less know how to shoot it, in what police described as not an accidental shooting, sums up how bad things are in America, how broken. Only in America must the purpose of learning fractions, or the alphabet, coexist with the goal of staying alive. You'd think every American governor would see both gun violence and education as urgent crises. Instead, some of them, in red states, are more concerned about whether a six-year-old has two dads or whether family-friendly family friendly drag queen shows will scar kids for life. Spoiler alert, they won't. They are fixated on stopping mask mandates and stoking the culture war in schools. Like Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, who's obsessed with rewriting K-12 history curriculum so that white people don't feel bad about slavery and whose state is where this recent shooting in Virginia Tech happened. Or Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who called for abuse investigations into the use of gender-affirming care for trans youth, and whose state is where Uvalde happened. And then, of course, there's Florida, where Parkland happened, but where woke goes to die, per its Viktor Orban-style governor. And by woke, that means anything Ron DeSantis doesn't like, whether it's vaccines or the gay youth he wants to stamp out of existence or discussions about race and classrooms that don't make white folks look like heroes. What's up with Ron telling people how to speak and what to think, by the way? And now, Florida's supreme ruler, who God made a fighter per his self-lionizing ads, is taking it to a new level. But here's the fun thing. Turns out, it's not about the children. How the boogeyman skipped ahead to college. That is next. Not even a week since Ron DeSantis began his second term as Florida governor, and he's already ratcheting up his don't say gay anti-woke crusade, now setting his sights on the state's colleges and universities. 
Over the weekend, DeSantis appointed six hardline conservative loyalists to the board of trustees at New College, a small Florida liberal arts school, including right-wing activist Christopher Rufo, who you might remember from his interview on this show, and who helped lead the charge to demonize the term critical race theory on the national level. Rufo also just so happened to tweet two days before his appointment, Governor DeSantis is going to lay siege to university diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. It comes just days after the DeSantis administration sent a memo to all Florida state schools demanding that they provide a comprehensive list of all staff programs and campus activities related to diversity, equity and inclusion and critical race theory. Joining me now is Florida State Senator Chevron Jones, who serves on the Florida Senate Education Committee. And Chevron, you alerted me first to this letter. What did this letter? What are the implications of this letter? Because it sounds like the idea is to scare universities away from having anything on diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's exactly what it is, Joy. And it's also a, a way to create confusion within um, our university systems. Uh, if you look at some of the reports of some of the uh, professors and some of the administrators, uh, professors are pulling out of teaching classes on gender identity. They're pulling out and teaching classes on race uh, because they don't know what direction uh, this information in which the governor is searching for. But this just gives you a preview of what this next legislative session will be like. Another 60 days of culture wars and continuing to demonize and go after those who don't agree with them. Um, now it's our colleges and universities. And by mind you, uh, if this is the role that the governor's office is planning to go down, uh, then this switch is not going to be that simple because many of these DEI programs in our schools are tied to federal dollars and play vital roles at our college and university. And so it's more than just talking about equity and equality in our workplaces. Some of these DEI programs have very important implications, like ensuring their university is following the American with Disability accommodations on their campuses, or even handling of EEOC complaints or gender discrimination. So these implications that the governor's offices are not taking into consideration, and they're just interested in continuing on the culture wars that they have been doing for the last two to three years. And, and the, those who've watched the show remember that Christopher Rufo is, is hell bent on ending diversity, uh, ed, diversity and inclusion in anywhere, in workplaces and in schools. Let me read you a little bit of this ProPublica report. Muzzled by DeSantis, critical race theory professors cancel courses and modify their teaching. Jonathan Cox was scheduled to teach two classes this past fall at the University of Central Florida that would explore colorblind racism. But he worried that the Stop Woke Act effectively banned him from discussing those ideas in class and that teaching the courses would cost him his livelihood. Cox was the only black professor professor in the sociology department and wouldn't be considered for tenure until the fall. His salary was the family's only income while his wife stayed home with their baby. This led him to scrap both courses, saying it didn't seem like it was worth the risk. Somebody who's not even in the class could come after me. Somebody sees the course catalog, complains to a legislator. Next thing I know, I'm out of a job. It sounds like the descriptions of the old Soviet Union. You worried that your neighbor or someone in the class could tell on you. And as somebody who used to teach race, gender, and media in at Syracuse and at Howard University, you know, that would be illegal, I guess, now in Florida. Well, and, and Joy, I'll be honest with you, I visited all the 12 um, SUS schools in Florida last year when I got onto the Education Committee. And a lot of these presidents spoke very highly of our higher education system. And many of them even said that, you know what? And no, we are not indoctrinating students here in this institution. There have already been declines in the proportion of professors protected by tenure, meaning that most faculty members are not in position secure enough 
to resist political pressure, leaving professors, like you said, muzzled about what they say, scared because they don't know if I say this, then I run the risk of losing my job. But this is what they want to do. They want to fear monger. They want to muzzle teachers so that they can create this confusion and they can continue to push the agenda that they're trying to push here in the state of Florida. Now, you know, he uh, DeSantis claimed that this was all about not having third graders learn about sexuality or sex in class. But this is not targeting third graders. This is basically going all the way from kindergarten all the way through university and saying that in Florida, there will be no discussion of race, no discussion of gender uh, identity, nothing. It will be this right wing Christian identity enforced upon students as an ideology. And the state of Florida's education ain't great. Florida ranked 33rd, 34th, and 31st in eighth grade. It ranked sixth, fourth, and third among states for fourth grade math. Its scores in education ain't great. No, our, our scores are not good at all. Our students have regressed in reading. Our school, our students have regressed in math, especially uh, after the pandemic. Uh, we should be focusing more on, on, on that. We should be focusing on how we're going to bring our students uh, to reading with proficiency, uh, understanding math with proficiency. But they rather continue down this uh, buzzword campaign about yeah. and CRT. You know what else they things. can do? Yeah. yeah. Well, or or making sure they don't get shot. While they're in class. Uh, yeah. Thank you, State we Senator. Should. That would be nice, be too. You don't care about that? He doesn't care about that either. Uh, thank you, State Senator Chevron Jones of Florida. That is tonight's readout. At KPMG, our people make the difference. It's not just something we say, it's what we do. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG. Make the difference.